I'm Fred McMurray, which means this must be... We at the Pillars of Franchising team would like to express our gratitude to Feedspot for listing us as number one in their 2023 list of top 50 franchising podcasts that you should listen to. Thank you from everyone here at Pillars of Franchising. Hey, Sarah, how are you today? I'm good, Kristen. How are you? Great. Thank you. Good. Um, I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about your process of um, you already have one franchise starting up and going for your second, third, fourth. How did you go into that process? Well, part of the, the situation for us happened to be kind of twofold. One, after we opened our business, we literally got open and then the Great Recession hit. So we opened in 07. By 08, things were folding all around us. And I happened to have a neighbor who also had opened about six or eight months after me. And the financials just were not working. Um, This is in one way, I think, where a 401k rollover for her did not work. Um, And some of the investments that were made were not necessary Um, things could have certainly been done on a cheaper scale. And so when she came to me, um, she was pretty much out of money. So I acquired that business in 2008 or 2009. Um, The second, which brought me to three territories, um, was a few years later, Um, It was somebody that I had validated with and had suggested for that individual that he not move forward with the brand. Um, I didn't think that it was right for his experience, his background, even kind of his personality. It just didn't seem like there was a good fit there. Um, He went forward with it. But he remembered that I was the one person who suggested that he not do it. And um, again, lucky for me, he was a neighbor on another side here in Chicago. Um, And he also came to me while he was open um, for a lot of mentoring and support. Um, The challenge for them was being able to execute on those items. And so, again, when it was time to sell, he came to me and said, listen, I want to give you the first opportunity Uh, You were honest with me. You suggested that we not do it. We did it anyway. You've helped us along the way. Would you like to buy it? Um, The final one, my fourth now, um, was very much the same way. When that owner started struggling and even beforehand, um, I always try to be a really good neighbor and remember that while people go into business for themselves, they're not by themselves. That's so true. Um, In a franchise community, especially in a close-knit Um, group of people. And in Chicago, we have a co-op. So it keeps us all very tight, as you know. Um, I try to make sure if somebody reaches out or if they look like they're struggling, I reach out and just say, hey, if you need something, let me know. We can share ideas. And so uh, when he was ready, um, he also came to me and said, hey, I think I'm ready. Can we have lunch? And we sat down, we talked about it. Um, So over the last 
now 16 years, we've made three additional acquisitions. Um, I did buy a very small territory to complete kind of this logistical geographic area very early on as well. Um, and I will say the best thing about doing that with my neighbors and with people that you have a relationship with is that it allowed me in two situations to do owner financing. Um, and those are really great ways to buy a franchise or expand your business without having to go back to the bank. So I'm sure we can talk more about that at any given point in time. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of fun. I wasn't expecting that answer. Like, you, you know, I'm going to go help people out and be their friend and kind of mentor them. And, you know, a benefit of that is when they don't want to do it, I get their stuff. So that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah, you know well the, And you know, the thing is, it's all about protecting your brand, right? We talk about that as one of our pillars. It's, um, you know, protecting the brand. And I think that, you know, one person being successful doesn't make a successful brand. And so if you have a yeah. community of of the same brand, a community of owners, you know, the power of many is always more um, effective than the power of one. And so that's just who I am at the core. That's how I like to run my business. Um, and I think that, you know, in the end, it all works out, right? And so, you know, if you come in and you're not a good business owner, if you're not a good neighbor, um, when opportunities come up, they may not fall in your lap. So... I love my neighbors today. I loved all the people that I helped exit their businesses. They're all really good people. It just wasn't a great match for them. And in some cases, it was just really bad timing. So, yeah, and that is definitely one thing I like about working where I'm working is that I know all the people, the owners around us and all their um, people who are at their desks in their offices. Right. Like right. Each other by first names. And it's not like, oh, you did this and that we can talk to each other and we're kind of friendly. Yeah. Which is great. Yeah. Well, and the great thing about that is because you're part of a franchise system, right? You can talk about, Oh, I, you know, this thing didn't work in the system, right. Or I couldn't figure out how to transfer this customer. And you've always got somebody to reach out to. So I really like that environment. I think that um, in the right franchise systems, it really does grow a franchise family. So I'm happy with the choice we made for sure. Right. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Hey, franchise owners. How's your local marketing? Do you feel like you could use some help keeping up with your social media posts and comments and reviews? Do you wonder if you could be doing more to attract local customers? Are you able to identify new movements to your local area? At Westvine, we help franchisees like you reach more local customers through digital marketing. With daily monitoring, creative content, and ad placement, and customer data intelligence, we'll get your business in front of the people who want your products or services. We also work with franchisors who need an agency to handle the digital marketing for all of their locations. If you're ready to reach more local customers, give us a call at 805-265-5440 or visit us at westvine.com. That's 805-265-5440 or Westvine with a Y dot com. Welcome to another episode of Pillars of Franchising. With me today, we have Harold Kestenbaum with Svedia Liana Law Firm, and they are franchisor law, a franchisor law firm. And Harold, today we're going to talk about that big, ugly FDD. 
otherwise known as the best known cure to mankind <laughs> for insomnia. <laughs> so we're going to obviously talk about the most critical items um, that someone needs to look at in this FDD as we prepare to buy a franchise, right? But I want to ask you, we've been talking a lot lately about emerging brands. Can you tell me if you've been noticing a big difference between emerging brands and their FDD versus maybe some of the more established franchisors out there? Well, first of all, many emerging brands are so new, they may not have what we call an item 19, and that's a financial performance representation because they're too new. Uh-huh. And most of the time, you, they should be, if they're not in business for at least a year, they're not going to have one. Right. And you're not going to see really, I mean, you shouldn't see any litigation in, in item three for an emerging brand. So the established brands will probably, I almost guarantee they have an item 19 because they've been around long enough. Sure. Which is very critical if you're buying a franchise. And there's a good chance you might see litigation in item three because they've been around so long. Right. So those are really the two. And, and the other thing is emerging brands typically have an opening balance sheet with some cash. And I've seen some companies with $5,000 in the bank and others with six figures. An established brand is going to have a real balance sheet, a real you know, a financial statement, real income. So that's that's a that's a big difference. I mean, you know, you're going to see, you know, an established brand with a big accounting firm, whereas the emerging brand has some, you know, guy with a shingle. Yeah. And, and that's what they're going to get. So those are the things you got to be careful of. Now, on the flip side, when you get into the ground floor of an emerging brand, there are things you could negotiate. That, for example, you're not going to be able to negotiate with a with an established brand. You should take it or leave it. Right. So, so those that's the benefit on the other side. Okay, uh, let me jump, if I can. So what I just heard you say is every time we've ever asked the question of what are the top three items people should read first on an FDB, FDB, item 19 always comes in there. They always say item 19. And on an emerging brand, from what I'm hearing is that's not really useful. That there's... There may not be. They might not be able to do one. That's right. Okay. Is, that, is that a deal breaker for you, Harold, or, or should it be a deal breaker that, for people? That, you know what? That's a, a decision that the buyer is going to have to make, whether they want to do if they like. You know, some will fall in love with a, with, a, with a brand that may be brand new, and they know that hey, this is great. I know it's going to be great. I don't care, you know, what if they have a track record or not. That's really up to them. You know, the lawyer shouldn't stick his nose in there when it comes to that. Yeah. Okay, so then the other one you said was item three. And we've talked, uh, there's been a fair amount of discussion on item three that you look at a big brand is probably going to have some type of litigation. And so you're looking at uh, who sued them, why. But you're saying on an emerging brand, if there is an item three, that's probably something to run away from. Yeah, because they have no franchisees, so who's suing them? So, I mean... And that also goes for item four, which is bankruptcy. I mean, if, if, the, if the emerging brand has the, the, the owner file for bankruptcy, I mean, that, you know, it, that would be a problem. In, a, in an established brand, that, you, know, you don't even 
care about that. It doesn't matter. Right. Okay, so on the you said item four, which is bankruptcy. Um, bankruptcy. So would the item four include bankruptcies for any of the leadership team or? Yes. Or, oh, or, within ten years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ah, so therefore. If they've got an item four, that's a let's run away from also. Yeah, I think sometimes when you when you look at this and correct me if I'm wrong, Harold, you know, at a time like this, you've got people who maybe uh, ran businesses or something. And uh, for whatever reason, coming out of COVID, maybe they had to reorganize. Right. That could be an option. That's very possible. Now, yeah. It's- the other thing you got to be careful about. And, and, and this is part of the due diligence of somebody who's buying a franchise. When it's an emerging brand and you look at item 20, which is your list of franchisees, you'll probably see zero. Yeah. So you'll have nobody to call and get a frame of reference regarding the franchisor. And an established brand, they could have pages of franchisees who you can call and find out what's going on. Right. So again, that's the caveat when you're buying in a, in a brand new brand which has no franchisees or a track record. There's no way to, to to verify or or to to validate the concept because you can't call anybody. There isn't anybody to call. Sure. And what you're really talking about in this case, though, are the micro emerging, right? I mean, these are the, the these aren't somebody who's got you know 50 to 100. These are the people no. who are just I mean that starting, right, out. starting yeah, out. Yeah, I, I mean. I, I call that if you have 50 to 100, you're beyond emerging. You're there already. I mean, 100, yeah. 100 locations is pretty good. Right, right. So categorize that as emerging. Okay. So, Kristen, one of our recent guests I thought was uh, a, quote, an emerging brand, but they had had a huge number of franchisees already. Yeah, we've had a couple on that way. And I think part of what steers people towards that as Harold said you know they they understand why there isn't an item 19 or an item three and they fall in love with a model or a concept they you know you could take our friends at salty dog right he is familiar with the industry he knows that it's you know I'm just gonna say an eight billion dollar industry and there just isn't enough people within that category to service that niche. And so that's why they've come out with their model. I think if you do enough research and or your franchisor does enough research research to say, this is the market segment percent that we know we can get, here's how we're going to do it. And if you're, I'm not going to say a risk taker, but a little bit, yeah, of a risk taker, you believe in the model, I think it's okay. I appreciate Harold pointing out that those are the models that tend to be most flexible with negotiations. And Harold, can you tell me like, you know, in this situation, what are some of the things that a friend, a potential franchisee should expect to be able to negotiate with an emerging brand? Well, I'll give you a, a historic example. Not many people have remember Weight Watchers, but most some do. Weight Watchers started 30 or 40 years ago. And they didn't know how well they would do. So the, the early franchisees negotiated a huge territory. And I mean, I mean, huge. And Weight Watchers was very happy to give that to them because they didn't have any franchisees. They wanted to, you know, stick a, a, a flag in the ground and, yeah, you could have Kansas City and the whole metropolitan, whatever. Yeah. 
fast forward 30 years, they had these franchisees had about a, a million dollar plus business with a territory that was gigantic that, you know, Weight Watchers was angry with the new ownership that they gave it away. Yeah. So territory size is something that's very negotiable with the new brand. The okay. Fee, not so much, although I know that some will, will kind of, you know, give a little bit on the fees. I, I instruct my franchise or clients never to touch the fees. Talk about everything else. Uh-huh. But I think territory is something that's very negotiable for brand new brand. Sure. I think that's interesting because really what you're talking about with, say, Weight Watchers is if you've got an owner and they own these big, huge territories, but yet they don't have the market penetration that they need in those territories, you've got a lot of people that aren't really being served and there's a lot of money left on the table for a competitive brand to come in, right? Yeah, I mean, and all that, that franchise, you can start cutting up the territory and selling parts of it off to make money that way. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think it's important for um, people to understand, too, that a lot of the fees, as you said, you, you tend to suggest they not change the fees. Those fees are all set to really make the P&L work, right? I mean, they've set those fees based on the monies that they need, based on how they're estimating a profit margin to be for their franchisees. So if you start messing with that, you never really know what you're going to wind up with. So, and you and. And the problem is, if you give the fr- one franchisee a break on the fees, everybody's going to find out, and they're going to all want the same thing, and it, it becomes a tidal wave. So you want to stay away from that. Absolutely. Okay, so then what I'm hearing is, is that negotiate, if you're with an emerging brand, negotiate on territory. I'm also hearing that if they're willing to negotiate on fees, that's actually kind of a red flag, isn't it? Well, that means you're desperate. Which is a red flag. That's that's awesome. So we've got two things to watch out with an emerging brand. What is what else can you negotiate on? Well, um, a lot can be, for example, in the termination section. You know, there's there's a default a default period. In other words, you get a notice of default and you cure within ten days, let's say. So. As a franchisee lawyer, you can negotiate, well, I don't want 10 days, not enough time. Give me 30 days. Yeah. And most franchisors are going to do that. Not the emerging, not the established ones, but the new ones. That's a give, that's a giveaway that nobody cares about now. I mean, they may care about 10 years from now, but today that's not, that's not something that they care about. So they'll, they'll give in on that. And, 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 you know, franchisee lawyers like put in reasonable wherever they can. That's easy to do. And again, an established brand like Subway won't touch, won't even put that in. Yeah. You know, the other thing I wanted to bring up, I don't know if this is something. So I bring it up because we all just went through the pandemic and it really did hinder a lot of businesses. And I know myself for a few weeks while we got this thing started and the shutdown and all, I got thrown into minimum royalties. Is that something, I mean, especially let's say we have another pandemic or something, you don't, can you negotiate minimum royalties in the event of an unforeseen? I don't speak too many. Only the franchise lords with a fixed fee royalty do that. And, and, and typically you're going to find that in an all cash business, for example. But otherwise, most of them are percentage of revenue. They're, they're not doing the, the, the minimum. Okay, so so they don't they don't say if you're making below X, you still have to pay Y royalty. 
So actually, you just hit something that I don't know if I've ever heard anybody talk about of, what was that? You said fixed fee royalty. Oh, there, yeah, there are, yeah, I, there are clients that it's $500 a month, and some will say it's 500 or the greater of 6%. So they have to pay it. So it really becomes a minimum of 500 or it could be more. Right. So my question is, is what industries do you tend to see these fixed fees in? Because I can't, my head says it's not across the board. There has to be. It's not. It's mostly businesses that are really cash only business. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, restaurants don't do that. Um, Some service businesses might do that, but most, most of them. Interesting. So if you had, I know Fred's got a, a question um, about the joint employer, Fred. Do you want to go forward with that one now? And then we'll get to the, the nuts and bolts of what are the five mission critical that you'd never consider buying a franchise without investigating. Go ahead, Fred, with your question first. So uh, franchise or, or sorry, um, joint employer. Uh, basically, for the, our listeners who aren't uh, don't quite understand that, is since the franchisor exhibits uh, control over the emplo- who a franchisee employs, then they're not really independent businesses, but they're a joint employer. So therefore, even the franchisee should be uh, uh, required to fulfill. Um, the bigger the they're all part of a bigger employer rather than a small one. Did I mangle that too much? Well, what happens is that the, the franchisor becomes liable for the, the actions of its franchisee when it does try to exert control. Every franchisor now is being advised by everybody who represents them: stay away from HR, do not get involved in their employees. Their, their salaries, their terminations. If you stay away from that and you don't exhibit that kind of control, and that's really control, then you're probably going to be okay when it comes to joint employment because then the franchise is basically independent. It's not, it's not joint employment if they follow your system because that's every franchise. Every franchisee has to follow the system. It's when the franchisor steps into the, the HR uh, pool where Oh, you should fire that, that employee because he's got his head down on his shoulders. He's a big guy. Or you should fire this one because they have tattoos. Can't do that. And, and you can't tell the franchisee, well, you should pay them $10 an hour and not 50 Okay, the franchisor has to stay away from that. And if they stay away from that, they're probably going to be okay. Now, okay. Harold, I'm sorry, we talked before about that there are some places in which joint employership is already in place. Now, it's on the books. California has a statute, AB5, that goes into that. But again, if you're not controlling the day-to-day operations of the franchisee, that even that statute will be, will be hard, it'll be hard for you to get dragged into that. Okay, so it doesn't mean when you say that, it just means that in that state, it's on the books, but every franchisee, franchisor has to keep that relationship very clean in terms of HR practices, correct? That's right, because if not, that statute's going to grab it. Perfect. All right. So tying, thank you. 
that's a great primer on everything, including Kristen's follow-up and on where. So my question then becomes is, as a potential buyer, is there a way for me in the FDD to have an idea on if the the ZOR is touching HR? You wouldn't see that in the FDD. You would see it in the operations manual. Ah, Kristen, you wanted to talk about operations manuals. So I was- did, I did, because, you know, we tend to talk a lot about the FDD. And it's it's interesting because when I got ready for my renewal, you know, I got my new FDD and everything. And I was like, wait a minute, all those situations that I wanted to look at, they weren't in the FDD, but they were in the operating manual. And I think a lot of times we focus on the FDD. Carol, can you tell me what kinds of things and and how important you feel the operating operating agreement is in comparison to the FDD? The FDD is what you see before you buy, and it contains terms that are in the franchise agreement because the franchise agreement is attached to it. But the operations manual is really what, what you can look at day to day as a franchisee. Um, what you have to do when you get there in the morning and what your inventory is like and, and who you call and who you order from and all kinds of things like that. And again, it depends on whether it's food, it's not food. You know, the, the restaurant office manuals can be 500 pages. I mean, that's how big they are. But it's important, and, I, and I'm telling all the clients that we have, that you, HR used to be a big component of the ops manual before the days of joint employment. Now we're telling these people, these clients, take it out. Don't even put a section in dealing with human resources. Let the franchisee deal with his own employees, pay their own salaries, terminate when they need to terminate, and stay away from that because that's going to get you in trouble. And that's and most of them are doing it. They're removing that from the ops manual. And even the consulting companies that, use, that do operations manuals, that's not even a, a section anymore. Interesting. So then you and you 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 answered my question, which was um, you you said you look at the FDD before you buy, but can you? My question then becomes is. That implies you got to look at the operations manual after you buy, which seems to uh, mean that I got a potential gotcha from the operations manual. So, will franchisors let you look at the operations manual before you buy? They, they, they guard that very carefully. And until you, you buy the franchise and come into training, you won't see it. Now, you'll see the table of contents. That's in the FDD. That you'll see, but you won't see. That's mainly because it has trade secret information in, in it, yeah, right? Yeah, do. so it makes sense, but it's kind of one of those, you got to be careful. So they, so, all, they, all, they all contain trade secrets. That's why you don't have to, you don't, you're not required to show them the ops manual prior to buying, but you do have to show them the table of contents. So, what that tells me is um, that one of the things to look at the FDD to invo- avoid the gotchas is you said the table of contents of the operations manual will be in there. Is that its own item? Exhibit. Okay, so it's an exhibit. So if I'm looking in there and they've got a good segment on um, HR, that's something, again, that's a red flag. 
this, you got I would I would have a discussion with the franchisor and say basically, I'm not telling I'm not gonna listen to you when it comes to hiring, firing, and salaries. So this disregard I'm just gonna disregard that. But if the franchisee has got a smart lawyer, they're gonna say to the franchisee, you better take that out because you're gonna wind up in trouble. Because if somebody walks into your restaurant and and break and, and slips and falls and breaks a leg, you're gonna get sued along with the franchisee. And that's basically what Joint employment is about. Mm-hmm. So, what? So, when I look at that, is is that something to take it back to something else you said? Uh, with a, we were talking about with a emerging brand. Is that something if they have it in there, you can because you said you tell them you're not going to abide by that. So that's literally something you could negotiate about. You can, you can let them know right up front. That's not going to be something you're going to. Ooh, we've learned a lot today, Kristen. We have. And with that, Harold, can you give us your top five items in the FDD that you absolutely cannot go without investigating? Item two is tells you who the people are. That's important. You want to know the background. Item three is the litigation. Uh, I mean, item five and six and seven are the fees and the investments. So you need to know that. Item 19, if there is one, is very important. And item 20, which is the list of franchisees, if there are any. Because clearly, I mean, when, when, when we bought back in, in the 1980s, my company bought a franchisor. And we had and that franchisor was an emerging brand, but it had about 20 franchisees. We had the list, and we called every single franchisee to find out if they, if they liked being in the system and they liked the franchisor. And we didn't tell them who we were. We told them we were buying a franchise. So tell us all about them. So if there is a, a, a list of franchisees, the, the buyer has to call everyone. Absolutely. I have to tell you that validation process for me was absolutely critical. And of the three brands that I looked at, one had a really strong validation. That was the brand I bought. And the two others, the, the feedback that I got from the owners was just horrible. But the numbers looked good, right? I mean, everything else on on paper looked really good. But when you started talking to people, you realized there was only one leader. So at this point, I will ask the the question of uh, if who should get a hold of you, Harold, for what types of franchise legal business? In other words, who's that cl- that potential client for you? Potential client for us are the brands because we don't represent franchisees. So if, if, if anybody's out there who's thinking about franchising their business, then that's the people we want to talk to. I mean, if they're buying a franchise, I can give them a dozen lawyers to talk to, but we don't do that. So if I'm if I'm thinking about becoming a Zor, you're the man to talk to. How do people get a hold of you? Website is a great website. It's very interaction oriented. It's spadialaw.com. And I mean, it's great. You see a lot of, we have software, we have innovations that no other law firm has. Uh, We have some software that we developed. It's unbelievable. Harold, it has been wonderful having you on again. I think it's been a couple years since we first met and uh, you know, you look great, sound great, sharp as a tack. 
even though the company name has changed. And I can't wait to have you back on again. 50 graduates resulting in seven new franchisees owning eight franchise brands, more than a dozen skilled graduates who are employees of franchise companies, all of them having earned a concentration in franchising exclusively granted by the Titus Center at Palm Beach Atlantic University, plus more than 80 franchise professionals on our advisory board. The Titus Center for Franchising is on fire in West Palm Beach, Florida. What do you need to join us? My students want to hear from you. They may even want to buy your franchise or work for your company. TitusCenter.com Thank you for joining us on Pillars of Franchising today. I'd like to give a special shout out to Jerry Akers, Karen Kimsey Sword, Ray Pillar, Laura Liss, our franchise lawyer, Andrea Mundy, and a special thank you to Fred McMurray, our producer. This has been another episode of Pillars of Franchising. And remember, we are your resource for franchising success. Join us again next week at 4 p.m. Central Standard Time, wherever you get your podcast. Have a great week.